0: Hello! Welcome to the third series of A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing together feminism, dinner parties, music and food. I'm Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club which explores feminism and social justice through literature, art, music and food. Each episode I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Mireille Harper. Mireille is an award-winning editor, writer, sensitivity and authenticity reader, and communications consultant. She is the author of Timelines from Black History and a contributor to Timelines of Everyone, the Black History book, and Migrations. Her essay, Why Passivity Will No Longer Do, is published in Feminist Book Society's Anthology, This Is How We Come Back Stronger. Her writing has been published in British Vogue, Natal, Digital Spy, Good Housekeeping, Port Magazine, and more. Dedicated to supporting cultural, creative and community projects, she's a trustee of my Grateful and Other Stories, Africa Rights and Etra Girls. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Alex. I'm really, really
1: privileged to be here and I can't wait to speak to you.
0: Wonderful. So let's get started. Which three guests are you inviting over for your dream feminist dinner party?
1: Uh, So I've got quite an interesting (laughs) lineup here, but I figured that they were all really inspiring and empowering women who have influenced me greatly. And I thought it would make for a real kind of riot of an evening to bring them together. So the first uh, is the writer, Toni Morrison, um, incredible novelist. I love her work. And then I've got Asata Shakur, who was a really influential activist. And lastly, I've got Eartha Kitt, who was an actress and a singer
0: wonderful Um, and where is this uh, feminist dinner party taking place
1: I kind of imagine that it would be really nice for this to take place in a sort of cozy cottage whenever people ask me about my kind of favorite environment it's always kind of really cozy intimate spaces so I imagine we've got the fireplace on nice music playing in the background um, and just a kind of Nice little table for us all to gather at. Um, So somewhere, yeah, warm and cosy, like a cottage, I imagine.
0: Lovely. And is this in kind of warm weather or cosier weather like today?
1: Uh, Do you know what? I'm really kind of like a winter person. I don't really take to summer so much. So Mm -hmm. I would say probably in the winter um, with, you know, lots of nice things to keep us warm, like blankets, fireplace, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing.
0: So I'm imagining a very pretty college, uh, cottage a la maybe the holiday cottage uh, in the Cotswolds or wh- wherever it is wherever it is um some roaring fires uh and lots of kind of blankets
1: yeah that's that's the setup I would say
0: lovely so these guests how have yeah. they inspired you and and do you think that they would get on as as a kind of trio
1: definitely I, th- I think it would be the sort of evening where you know like when you're with your friends and you talk for like five six hours but you literally feel like a minute has passed i feel like it would be that kind of environment i just feel like they'd have so much wisdom to impart um and also just so much to kind of speak on from their own lived experiences but just from their observations on life um i think all of them are incredibly inspirational women but also women who have really kind of tested the boundaries and And really kind of stood up um, for not only their rights, but for the rights of others as well. So I can imagine that it would be, yeah, a really kind of warm, uh, loud, celebratory evening with all of these women. And I feel like I could, yeah, learn a lot from them in that setting as well.
0: Mm. And what tunes are going to be on repeat all evening?
1: Um, Oh, I, well, I have three tunes, Um, so the first one uh, is There's No Greater Love by Amy Winehouse, Um, which, interesting, I went to the Jazz Cafe, I think, the night before last, Mm -hmm. and it was celebrating 20 years of Frank, which is such an iconic album, Mm -hmm. Uh, and this song just, it feels like paradise, whenever I listen to it, I just think Amy is one of the best vocalists, that we ever had um and it's just such a pure and innocent song which really kind of details yeah the the bliss i guess the yeah the bliss of love um mm-hmm. so that would be playing uh also the great gig in the sky by pink floyd um that's one of my favorite songs of all time and i remember when i heard it for the first time i think i was probably about nine or ten i was really young but something about it just made me like erupt into tears it was it was just yeah so so kind of euphoric as a listening experience so I'd have that on maybe as a little minute of silence for us all to just kind of yeah sit with it um and then the last song uh is a slightly different one a bit of an off-piece choice but uh it's at the river by Groove Armada uh which is (laughs) this is really morbid but oddly I've always said that I kind of want this song at my funeral, (laughs) I don't know why but I just feel like it's such a, again, peaceful, beautiful yeah, lovely song Um, Mm. and I feel like it's one that would, yeah, just make for a nice addition in the background.
0: So these are very kind of mellow thoughtful choices, I mean I'm a massive Amy Winehouse fan and and that There Is No Greater Love is one of my my favourite songs of hers Um, Mm. so it's quite a I guess restful evening is is the impression that I'm getting.
1: Yeah I think it's that thing of like I love ease um, and I'm really leaning into it the older I get um, you know not to say that (laughs) I've, I've kind of mastered it but I really feel like leaning into ease and you know an environment being gentle and soothing and really kind of good for your nervous system um so yeah I I love I love all that kind of thing so I feel like encouraging that over the course of the evening would be yeah really something I would like to uh nourish
0: mm. I mean and speaking of nourishment onto the mm. food what are you serving for your starter and are you cooking this feast or are you getting someone to cook it for you
1: uh I think I would probably need a little bit of assistance but <laughs> for the first I think I could do it myself <laughs> um so for the starter My idea was like a bit of a Jamaican melange. Um, So I, yeah, I'm half Jamaican. My mum was born and raised in Jamaica. And it's something that I feel very proud about, not only because of our food, but also because of our, you know, cultural heritage and our influence on the rest of the world. Um, And yeah, I'd love to kind of incorporate that into the dishes that I serve up. So for the starter, I'd be going for dumplings, which are some of my favourite foods, uh, saltfish fritters again love making these Kalaloo, which is really delicious um and I just love it steamed so I'd just serve it like that and then I think I would do like ackee and saltfish canapes as much as I love ackee and saltfish I kind of like it when it's contained mm-hmm. <laughs> in something so I I have this idea that I would do sort of like little mini puff pastries with ackee and saltfish inside that everyone could just munch on happily
0: amazing I mean that sounds delicious <laughs> And are you serving any drinks with your starter?
1: Do you know what? I didn't think about this, but I have been uh, trying some new drinks recently um, and I feel like a nice little kind of rum mixer on the side would be nice. So I'm not too sure what I'd mix it with, but uh, a rum that I tried recently, which I really love is this um, rum called Cromanti, which is uh, Caribbean owned and it's a kind of father and daughter duo who, uh, created it and it's just delicious. It's like flavored with all sorts like tamarind, and it's just really kind of fruity. And I feel like it would work really well with the food spread. And um, so yeah, I feel like nice little rum on the side, maybe with a mixer, would make for a nice addition.
0: Very delicious. Um, and how about for your main course?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> I guess this is where I'd probably need a lot more assistance, just because <laughs> I'm not so much of a confident cook in this area. But my vision was kind of like a big seafood spread. I love seafood. Um, I eat a lot of seafood, probably just because I don't eat meat. So it kind of, yeah, um, makes up for that. Um, So in my mind, I would have like a big spread of crabs and prawns and calamari. And then maybe some nice sides as well. So chips, because I love chips. Um, Maybe some garlic bread on the side. And then something a little bit refreshing, something I've really gotten into recently is like fennel salads fennel with orange bit of balsamic vinegar olive oil that like I feel like that would be nice for cleansing the palate um but yeah I feel like seafood would be the main focus for the main
0: absolutely delicious I'm the same I I'm pescatarian so I think Uh, I I replace my meat intake with um yeah all manner of seafood (laughs) (laughs) I mean that's a delicious main course and especially the fennel and orange and it's kind of light but I can imagine it's pretty plentiful in terms of all the different kinds of seafood and fries and, and garlic bread, that kind of thing.
1: Mm, definitely.
0: Absolutely delicious.
1: Uh,
0: and are you continuing with the rum cocktail or is there something different for uh, for your dessert?
1: Um, in terms, well, I guess, yeah, I guess for dessert, my vision was that we have something very kind of sweet um, and I, I just love chocolate. I love like really kind of rich sumptuous food um so my vision for a dessert was sort of like chocolate melt in the middle pudding um maybe with a bit of butterscotch on top and some salted caramel ice cream on the side just to really kind of (laughs) bring together this the sweet obsession um and I feel like with that I'm not too sure what we do for drinks because you need something to just like take some of the coating of that off Uh, maybe something I don't know maybe a sort of like nice gin or something Mm. um not too sweet, um, but yeah, I think maybe just some light drinks on the side, something with elderflower might be nice, mm. uh, yeah, something like that.
0: I mean, that's a pretty delicious menu, I think that's one of, one of my favorites that I have, uh, yeah, that I've seen on, on the podcast for sure. Um, chocolate melt in the middle, is also one of my favorite desserts, so yeah, so good. <laughs> very nice yeah. and great for kind of colder, yeah, a colder evening.
1: Mm, definitely how
0: how is the evening progressing is it becoming um kind of are you going to talk into the night are you getting a taxi and going to the nearest town for a boogie or are people kind of heading home soon after what's what's the kind of how's the evening progressing
1: I feel like in my mind the evening would progress with you know kind of maybe light conversations on On life but then delving deeper into more kind of philosophy uh, you know kind of outlooks on life perspectives that kind of thing I feel like it would be the sort of setting where we'd have finished the food (laughs) hours ago but we just have drinks sort of on the go maybe moving towards like Bailey's hot chocolate (laughs) territory Uh, and yeah just spend the rest of the evening kind of putting the world to rights, speaking on our experiences what we've learned um, yeah, that kind of setting. I don't imagine that we'd go out, mainly because I just don't like <laughs> going out like past a certain point. Yeah. I've become like, I've, I think I've always been a bit of a homebody, but my favorite evenings are like those with friends where you kind of just like bed yourself in and you just get cozier and cozier and warmer and warmer. Uh, and it feels almost like you're in a, a bit of a uh, like coma like state, but it, mm-hmm. it you, you know, you're in the kind of just comfort and warmth of home. Um, I think that's something. yeah, I would just really enjoy. So I just imagine us talking, you know, well on into the evening, maybe having a little dance here and there, Mm. um, but finding ourselves migrating back to the sofa for real kind of heartwarming um, and redeeming conversations. Mm.
0: What do you think those conversations would be about in terms of, you know, the guests that you've chosen? What would you like to speak with them about?
1: Oh, so much. I think... Especially from, I guess, Toni Morrison and Eartha Kitt, I've seen so many clips just where they kind of talk about, I guess, what it means to be a woman uh, and maybe specifically what it means to be a black woman, even if they're not, you know, kind of directly referring to that. Um, But just in terms of acceptance, uh, in terms of finding your kind of inner power. uh, Yeah, just generally what it means to be a black woman navigating the world um and how you can learn to navigate it with a deep understanding um uh, but also grace uh as specifically more kind of grace in terms of your how you view yourself mm-hmm. uh so I, I imagine we talk a lot about those different subjects um also I guess how we reckon <laughs> with life I always feel like I'm the sort of person I'm not I wouldn't say maybe I'm a cynic but sometimes I think I find it hard to see the joy in things when systems and institutions might remain the same and I feel like Tony and Eartha specifically are two women who you know navigated spaces that were quite hostile or toxic um and they they learned to do it well without ever kind of having to uh change their character or who they were so I'd love to kind of hear from them on how they've navigated those spaces how they've being able to bring their true selves to their work, how to be creative without compromising. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like, yeah, there could be so much from from that. Um, and maybe just in, in terms of Asata, I think that's more a kind of deeper curiosity of just like how she navigated, you know, kind of um, <laughs> escaping. I, I think I'd just love to hear her tales uh, if she still is hopefully safe in Cuba, which she is rumored to be. Uh, I'd just love to hear, I guess, on her her perspectives on liberation, real activism, um, and, yeah, what what she's kind of learnt um, from being on the other side of kind of trying to tear those systems and institutions down. I'd love to kind of have that, yeah, double perspective. Um, Yeah, I think that's what I would like to gauge from those guests.
0: Mm. I mean, in terms of your own kind of writing how does your feminism and how, how do you find space for feminism within your writing and your work
1: yeah um uh, yeah it's a really good question actually um I think that I I I, I do writing I, well, I write less uh, now um but I think when I was really actively writing a lot of my kind of energy for things came from like a place of rage. Uh, And I think I used to be very good at putting that rage into something constructive. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of the time, it was just kind of bringing light to something that was kind of irritating me, or, you know, aggravating me. And I was just able to maybe converse that (laughs) um, in a better way by kind of, yeah, writing on it, um, and kind of pleading people to either number one, pay attention to what was going on or number two, you know, give them the tools to do something about it. Uh, I write, I think I write a little bit less now, not because I'm any less angry, but because maybe I'm just, I think I'm a bit more tired (laughs) uh, and I find other ways of, you know, trying to, you know, be more feminist or be more active or be more kind of progressive in, in the way I live my life, the way I spend my money, the things I invest in. The conversations I have that kind of thing, um, and also in my work, um, which is you know, at being a, a kind of editorial director, is you know, what kind of books do I want to commission?
0: Mm-hmm. What kind
1: mm-hmm. of voices do I want to hear? Who can I, you know, who can I learn from? But also, who can the general public learn from? Because so much of power is in our words and in the media we consume, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's something I'm yeah, doing more, more of, um, and that's the way for me to kind of not only brings sort of my feminism, but also my kind of more broadly sort of uh, humanism. Like how do I, how do I, you know, encourage people to have more of a voice if it's something else that's holding them back, whether that's, you know, disability, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's their spiritual background, whether it's their socioeconomic class. I think I just consider that a little bit more uh, in my work and I, yeah, really try to, work with people who perhaps have not been uplifted in the spaces that I exist in um yeah I think that's probably how I'm navigating that now
0: Mm. and I mean how does that link I guess to your role as a sensitivity reader for for books
1: yeah uh yeah that's a really good question actually um yeah I I think I So I I feel like as well, it's a hard one with sensitivity reading because it's so misunderstood, (laughs) Um, even to the point that I think some people have really kind of, yeah, warped ideas around sensitivity reading. So, you know, a lot of, I think also my work now is trying to explain to people what sensitivity slash authenticity reading is, which is really an editorial function rather than a kind of I don't know, diversity and inclusion initiative, it's like, it's not that it's really kind of editorial, editorial function um, that serves to make up for, I guess, a lack within uh, not only kind of, you know, editors backgrounds, but also in terms of editors lived experiences. So with my sensitivity reading, I work with a lot of different institutions. So I work with publishers, but I also work with literary estates. I work with museums, um, galleries, Uh, institutions like the girls day school trust which is uh, the kind of body for independent girls schools in the UK and in a lot of these cases what I'm doing is I'm just looking at written materials so those can be written manuscripts they could be exhibition materials and guides they could be sick form programs and I just try and identify using my lived experience um, where there perhaps is misrepresentation or where there are inaccuracies or where the, where just where there are kind of gaps and how we fill them to make sure that, number one, the reading experience is more full, but also number two, that the work being put out is of better quality. Um, so I think, yeah, that's something that I try to pull myself into. And it's something I actually kind of fell into initially. Uh, I was kind of tasked by Dorling Kindersley, which is a children's publisher, to help them create freelancer guidelines, um, well, editorial guidelines, actually. And from there, I kind of just got got approached by lots of different uh, organizations. and I was very clear on only wanting to provide sensitivity reading services for specific lived experiences because it's very easy for you to become like a kind of catch-all <laughs> for mm-hmm. publishers or businesses. So you know, in a lot of the cases, I might be perhaps reading a character who is mixed race or I might be you know reading something which, looks at black British history or black British culture. Um, Or I might be looking at like, in the case of a sixth form program, who is included in terms of inspirational figures for young women. So there are lots of different, uh, I guess, aspects, but I try to make sure that I'm using my lived experience um, and my knowledge of certain areas to better um, those kind of outputs, um, just to kind of make people more aware. Uh, to make people understand things better and to just kind of create a bit of a better world. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'd say that's, I, I find that a real, um, a really, really enjoyable experience and something that it doesn't come easy to me because I have to still, I'm still educating myself. I do a lot of kind of reading around language and around progression of language, what's, what's changing, um, what might be becoming outdated, What it, what is more acceptable, what is more progressive. I'm always educating myself in those spaces, but I find that a lot of the realizations are quite intuitive in the same way that they are when I'm, you know, editing nonfiction. But it's just that I have the perhaps deeper, more contextual understanding of, of you know, what might be speaking to me and, and what might be telling me, oh, that's not quite right. How could that be better, you know, written? Or how could that be, how could that character be better portrayed? It's like a lot of it is that kind of intuition, combined with a lot of lived experience and understand deeper contextual understanding. Mm.
0: Do you, as a young kind of black British woman, do you feel mm. that um, often you're kind of boxed into certain spaces and that you would prefer or perhaps like to work in in terms of sensitivity reading, but also writing in kind of different spaces, but because of your identity and your background that you are boxed into kind of only working on certain types of, uh, writing or certain types mm. of sensitivity reading?
1: That's a really good question. Um, fortunately, no, uh, as far as I'm aware, maybe, maybe there's like <laughs> people who just aren't looking at me. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of sensitivity reading, there's been a lot of opportunity for me to delve deeper into things um, that I wouldn't have. So I would say that a recent uh, experience of that was, uh, you know, assessing some material for very, very young readers on um, Notting Hill Carnival. Um, So that was like a kind of area, I guess, you know, in terms of my heritage, there's some link there, but it's something that speaks more to kind of my cultural interests um, and my kind of more like hobbies and interests side of me. Um, so that's something I recently got to do a sensitivity read which featured a young character with chronic illness Mm -hmm. uh, and that was something that I found really exciting um, because yeah I live with chronic illnesses and I have also a lot of health conditions uh, and it was really interesting to see how I could better the reading experience uh, to avoid any kind of tropes and to you know make sure that the character was presented as a well-rounded character and not just a chronic illness person which can I think can sometimes occur in literature so yeah there's been examples like that um I think yeah I wouldn't say I particularly have been held back per se but I think something that I would potentially like to do more of is uh like writing about uh different maybe not so much different experiences but not so so much writing about current topics and that's something I've kind of just taken a step back from also because I just think there are so many wonderful journalists out there who are way better at kind of analysing you know current political situations etc. So I'm fortunate in that respect and that I haven't been pigeonholed but I would like to potentially delve into more kind of personal experiences um, if I have the opportunity to but yeah I guess we'll see but yeah I think I'm fortunate in that I haven't been so much pigeonholed as of late
0: Mm. I mean that's super interesting to hear about how much how much work requires a sensitivity sensitivity reading I guess lots of people think that it's only in publishing only in kind of literature Mm. but actually it's all manner of communications and yeah I guess what's the most kind of interesting not not in terms of specifics obviously but kind of most interesting Mm. type of writing that you might have that you might work on as a sensitivity reader
1: oh I think there's lots um yeah there's there's so many I mean so I've I've done you know everything in terms of children's from uh, picture books to young adults so the kind of full spectrum including like middle grade and young readers um so that's quite interesting in that you a lot of the time with those younger kind of books you're assessing the visuals as well as the writing so that's quite fun um I think probably in terms of yeah maybe the most interesting are things like classics I've only worked on classics once um and that was with the Ian Fleming estate mm-hmm. and that was really interesting because there was so much uproar, mainly caused by the tabloid press because they must not have <laughs> enough in their news cycle but I found it so fascinating because people Thought that Ian Fleming was kind of being rewritten, which of course is impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, a lot of that really kind of my work with the Ian Fleming estate involved providing kind of contextual knowledge to the reader so that they were able to understand the perspective that Ian Fleming had, the time he was writing in, um, and you know, the obvious kind of issues and flaws but it really wasn't about kind of, yeah, reworking the material because it's, you know, it's a classic, you kind of can't do that. Um, But that was really interesting to work on um, and really fascinating because I actually learned a lot about Ian Fleming himself, uh, mainly when it came to, when it came to kind of uh, editorial collaboration, because I think a lot of people uh, kind of had this vision of like, well, I guess Ian Fleming was a misogynist and a racist. (laughs) That's like, if you read any any James Bond book it's like that's the foundations of every book but it's really fascinating to me because people thought that you know Ian Fleming would be rolling in his grave but when Ian Fleming was alive he had sensitivity readers that he worked with and he agreed multiple times to change works um while he was alive Mm
0: -hmm. through
1: recommendations given by sensitivity readers so I found that just like a really kind of interesting Uh, revelation, especially because we think of sensitivity readers as this very new kind of concept. Um, But it it really is a kind of function that has been around for a long time, and was probably maybe more served by editors and through their kind of speaking to others in their midst of like, does this sound right, feeding that back to the author, whereas now it's just a paid function, um, which is carried out by a separate figure. So Yeah, I think that's probably been one of the most interesting things to work on. Um, Yeah, was classics, but potentially also the sick form programme, just because it was interesting to see what young women of today are being taught, who they're seeing as inspirations and um, just how we communicate to young women nowadays, the different paths that they can take, the different inspirations that they might have in different fields um, and just, yeah, kind of broadening... perspectives of 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 what it means to be a young woman today and and you know what those who those I guess young women can grow up to be.
0: Mm. I guess also that real difference between someone who might just be 10 years younger than you you know or whatever how how different their experiences of things like gender and race and uh, social media might be and, and how that affects the way they see the world as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it's so complex as well in this kind of new age, because I think there's so many empowering tools. um, And I think even with platforms like TikTok, for instance, I find it fascinating how I can see so many different lifestyles compared to mine. Um, So for instance, I, a lot of the time might watch, um, you know, kind of like what it's like for a single mother in her teens who lives in a trailer park in America something I wouldn't have instant access to I can observe that on TikTok I can also observe perhaps like women my age who are full-time caregivers to parents who have severe illnesses and I'm given instant access to those lived experiences but at the same time there are lots of lived experiences which are very unrealistic which are becoming I find more and more kind of aspirational so just the kind of hyper consumer hyper consumerism that i see on tiktok which for me is a massive concern um how that's seen as like a achievable not just an aspirational goal but something that's achievable and should be um yeah should be kind of encouraged um as well as things like uh you know you know i'm not saying that there isn't a reason to do this but I'm, i'm seeing a lot of content from like young mormon women uh in the u.s there's a model who is very kind of well known and she kind of does these lovely posts uh, about cooking for her partner and her children and I think she's expecting her third child at 22 or something like that which might seem kind of harmless and sweet but then if you look into kind of Mormon doctrine it's really kind of dark uh, and slightly cultish and it's just I find it really fascinating because I think there must be so much for young women to almost dodge in a way or have a kind of, again, deeper, more contextual understanding of to not get kind of warped in um, Mm -hmm. uh, or drawn in rather by these kind of images and lifestyles that they're seeing. But it's so bizarre because I just think everything looks very, uh, I guess, attainable or realistic for people on these apps like TikTok, um, because they provide such a personal and intimate insight in a way that other social media platforms I don't think have yet mastered. So Yeah, I imagine it's a it's a lot for young women nowadays. Um, And, you know, with things like toxic masculinity ever on the rise, and what I would perceive to be very kind of radical violence, um, masculinity, uh, which I think is something that we still yet don't feel fully comfortable, feel comfortable talking about, but to me is one of the most worrying forms of extremism in the UK. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a lot for young women nowadays to contend with. And I just hope that there is more done uh, to protect young women um, and to ensure that they will continue to have better futures than the women before them have had.
0: Mm. I mean, this leads very nicely onto our last question that I always ask um, our guests, Mm. which is, uh, what are you doing on an everyday basis in a small way to become a better feminist, either for yourself or for those around you?
1: Um, that's a good question. Um, I would say, kind of on a personal level, um, just being a very supportive figure in the women I know's lives. So uh, a lot of, I guess, a lot of support for maybe more kind of acquaintances is things like giving, uh, giving advice. Uh, a lot of that is around publishing getting into publishing but also people I know who are aspiring writers I do a lot of kind of like video sessions where I talk about you know how you navigate the industry because it's one that is uh, very classist very elitist and can seem like there is a kind of <laughs> force field around so a lot of my time is spent um yeah giving advice particularly to young women who are wanting to get into the industry or who are aspiring to be writers um, on a kind of more personal basis, supporting my family. Um, My grandma is unwell and has been since 22, uh, 2022, sorry. So for the past almost two years now, um, I have been supporting my family in caregiving. Um, My grandma has dementia and Alzheimer's and that has been, it's been really weirdly like a very, a very uh, challenging but also a very empowering experience mm. in terms of seeing somebody who for me is probably my biggest feminist icon um she's yeah she's incredible she worked three jobs for 20 years to raise my mum and my aunt uh and she came here from Jamaica you know it wasn't you know, wasn't very easy um and seeing her kind of revert to a toddler state is a really weird one because in ways I feel like I see parts of her inner child come out. Um, So yeah, just navigating, navigating that um, is an interesting experience, but one that I think has been very nourishing and is a way of me, I feel giving back because she spent a lot of my childhood looking after me. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's another way that I feel like I'm serving that. And then I guess just more widely using my resources and using my skills. I do a lot of trustee work. I do a lot of talks. Um, that help you know feminist organizations or female-run organizations or female-focused organizations. Um, Etra Girls is one of those which is all about empowering young girls mainly kind of uh, you know preteen, teen um, by just telling them all the opportunities that are open to them and I think that's a really good way of reaching young women before they're feeling the pressure to make such big decisions. Um, So, yeah, that kind of thing. And then just making sure that I'm uplifting women in the books I publish. Um, I recently acquired an amazing book by an amazing young woman that I hope to have (laughs) have the ability to say more about soon. Um, But it looks at um, bipolar. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, again, I feel like comes with a lot of stigma for young women. So that book, I hope, will help to break down some of that stigma and also reinforce more understanding about complex mental health conditions that are often uh, kind of uh, demonized in the media or kind of misunderstood. Uh, And I also hope that in publishing it, it will also inspire women who might feel like they may have some symptoms, but might feel scared to talk to a medical profession about it, it might open up more for them and allow them to understand their own minds a bit more. So I guess that's, roundabout ways <laughs> of doing things um but i think that every little helps in terms of yeah making the world a better more compassionate and understanding place for women basically
0: is a, a wonderful answer thank you so much mire for joining us
1: uh today thanks so much